Hi all, welcome back to Gory Time. I'm your host Rebecca. And I'm your co-host Emily. So Emily, in the last episode we spoke about Peter Tobin. Now Tobin is actually one of the main suspects, from the public point of view anyway, in the Bible John murders. Have you heard of the Bible John murders? I haven't. Nah. So I've known this case as long as I can remember but I mentioned it to my boyfriend recently and he had no idea what I was talking about so I realised he like you might be (laughs) (laughs) this is the case of Bible John On a February night in 1968, in the Barrowlands Ballroom, the night was being danced away. It was a Thursday night, which was over 25s, or as the locals knew it, grab a granny night. (laughs) Over 25s. Over 25s was called grab a granny night. (laughs) Um, Everyone was blissful and they were just enjoying their night. Um, over 25's night had a little bit of a reputation the people there generally went with, weren't with their partners their wedding rings were secreted into their breast pocket and people often gave fake names so as the night drew on drunk people stumbled out into the streets of Gallowgate and Pat Docker walked home, was walked home by a handsome stranger he had red hair and had been whispering scripture to his dance partners all night but he was polite and well-spoken, clearly well-educated. So when he offered to walk Pat home, she gladly accepted. It's a courteous offer from this gentleman. He was well-dressed too, in a sort of brown suits, single-breasted jacket, waistcoat. He even had a nice watch. Pat was married to a man in the Royal Air Force, but they were actually estranged. He was still living in Lincolnshire, but they were married and the subject of divorce had come up. She was now living a quiet life at her parents and she was also the mother of a four-year-old son. She worked part-time as a nurse at Merckskirk Hospital in Renfrewshire. She was excited to go out dancing tonight. She told her parents that she was going to go to the Majestic but somewhere along the way she decided to go to the Barrowlands. She'd put on her yellow knitted dress which is very much something I would wear. (laughs) and her grey duffel coat that had blue fur around the collar. This was to brave the cold Glasgow night. This was February. She wore her matching brown leather shoes in her handbag. She also wore her grandmother's watch and wedding ring. Next morning, these clothes were nowhere to be seen. Not by the joiner leaving his house for work, who had found her beaten, strangled and raped on Carmichael Lane just yards from the street she lived on in Langside Place. Her half-frozen body was found between 7 and 8 in the morning. Pat's brown leather handbag was found in the river cart, which is around a 15-minute drive away. Her watch was found in a pool of water closer to her body. Her clothes have never been found. Do you know what they found with her body? 
a bloody pad. What? Yep. A bloody pad. Like... Period pad. Wait. What? Ew. Okay. At least I door duty. Police did door duty soon after her body was found and someone had actually heard a woman screaming, leave me alone, the previous night. When her body was picked up in an ambulance, the paramedic actually recognised her as Patricia Docker, but it would be two days until she was formally identified by her dad. Patricia's post-mortem found that her cause of death was in fact strangulation and she had been raped. And she was in fact on her period. Stage of rigor mortis, which for those of you that don't know, rigor mortis is the change resulting in the stiffening of the body muscles due to chemical changes in the myofibrillus, and this helps in estimating the time of death, as well to ascertain ascertain if the body had been moved after death. This definition is from the US National Library of Medicine. But this showed that she had died very shortly after leaving the Badlands ballroom. Investigators realised that she'd been repeatedly punched and kicked in the face as she screamed for him to leave her alone. She was then raped and strangled with her own tights or a belt. The killer had left no fingerprints. Do you know what I'm finding, like, really unsettling? Is that, (laughs) apart from the obvious, um, she was found with... Her clothes had never been found, but, like, why was her bloody pad left next to her body? We will like, get to that. Okay. You, you will see for important. Okay. <laughs> the news of her fate graced the papers the next day, but no one really noticed. Crime was high in Glasgow in the 60s, which is now a lot better, with only 64 murders from 2019 to 2020. There were razor gangs in Glasgow and a lot of sectarian violence. If people don't know, Glasgow has a long history of violence between Catholics and Protestants because when the Irish Catholics came over during the potato famine, they needed jobs and would work for less than the Protestants who were already living in Glasgow. And because of this, there was violence and then revenge attacks. And then 140 years later, there's still tension to this day. (laughs) Anyway, violence in the 60s was unfortunately common. So although this was sad, it wasn't unexpected. And this murder shocked and really affected those who knew Pat, but for everyone else, nothing changed. Police's investigation had them looking at the Majestic initially, as that's where she told her parents she'd gone. But when no one's seen her there, they expanded. And after three days, three long days of investigation, they found she hadn't even been there. She'd been at the Barrowlands. They expanded their search and they found that she had been dancing with a handsome redhead. None of her friends or colleagues at the hospital knew anything about this guy, and their investigation kind of stalled out, and eventually, no more tips came in, and Pat's murder was cold. 18 months later, on the 18th of August, 1969, February Frost did a long thawed and whispers in the Barrowland ballrooms about the murdered girl who had been last seen there, a faint memory. When Jemima MacDonald, who also went by Mimi, asked her sister Margaret to look after her three children, she fancied a night in the town. Margaret was more than happy to oblige. They always did this for each other. Jemima did herself up 
did her makeup, and then she dressed in her black pinafore, paired with a frilly shirt, off-white slingback heels, and her brown woolen coat with a black patent leather handbag. She took her kids to her sister. Margaret probably told her how nice she looked, brought the kids inside, and told her to have a nice night with a cheeky smile. You know, like sisters do. Mm-hmm. Jemima met up with her friends at Betty's bar, and they chatted to a man. He was handsome, tall man in a blue suit who had red hair. But she left him and they walked across the road to the Barrowlands Ballroom on this Saturday night, expecting a fun night together. Jemima was approached by the man she'd spoken to earlier. He asked her if he could have this dance and Jemima said yes. She enjoyed his company, so when the song ended, she kept talking to him. He was nice, a little shy, and he did this thing where he'd quote scripture to her. She was polite, so she nodded and sounded interested. They danced together all night, and I can just imagine the sly looks that she and her friends would be exchanging, especially when the pair left together after, just after midnight. Like, imagine the giggling exchanged across the ballroom when Jemima looked her arm through this handsome stranger's. When I imagine this, I imagine you and I in this situation, and I would so be wiggling my eyebrows at you. I definitely uh, hope. Yeah. <laughs> I want to hear about this tomorrow. <laughs> but she didn't dish the dirt with her friends the next day. In fact, Margaret was concerned. Jemima hadn't turned turn up to pick her kids up. Then, even stranger... She'd heard the local kids talking about there being a body in a derelict building nearby. Thinking they were just being imaginative, she just tried to put it to the back of her mind. But it it just kept coming back to her. She had thought about going over to look, but she was sure it was just childish stories. The longer it went on, she was sure the kids would play a different game. But instead, more kids talked about the dead body. The thing is, she was also terrified because if it was true well Jemima hadn't come home and the possibility that it could be Jemima was it was too much it took her a couple of days so this is now the Monday morning to walk down the road and into this derelict building when she walked in she was assaulted by this awful smell and dread just sweeps over her. There on the floor is her sister's battered, beaten body lying down on the floor. She, unlike Pat, was still clothed. Her undergarments were torn and her shoes and stockings were lying near her body. Her handbag was nowhere to be seen. Margaret immediately ran home and called police. That is just awful. Imagine like you, finding your sister like that. You just, you just couldn't even imagine that. Like, I, I can imagine. Like, you don't want to because you don't want to give yourself the opportunity to think that that situation is even real. Never mind you being the one to go over and go. Oh, it's actually my sister mm-hmm. there. At Jemima's postmortem, it showed that she had been beaten mostly in the face. She'd been raped and strangled with her own stalking. She had been dead for around 30 hours before she'd been found, and she had been on her period. One thing that was with her body that I failed to mention a bloody pad. This is really weird. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, police once again did door duty, and they found one woman who lived on the same street as Jemima was found. 
She'd heard a woman screaming in the early hours of Sunday. So around the time that Jemima was probably being murdered. But as the ear witness couldn't give a precise time, police pretty much said this information was useless. Now, police did see the obvious similarities. A woman, last seen with a handsome stranger in the Barrowlands, beaten extensively around the face, raped and strangled. Both women were on their period and both had their handbags removed from the scene. But police thought they must be unrelated. Um, that's weird. What? I mean, how do you come to the conclusion <laughs> that something that specific is unrelated? It's so specific. <laughs> like, I feel like if I was in the police and like only 18 months between these two and it both had been beaten around the face raped, strangled and specifically had a bloody pad left yeah. at the scene it's that part that surely you could put that together and be like oh maybe oh concern <laughs> and both um, last scene with someone from the Barrowlands mm-hmm. a handsome red headed stranger hmm but you don't, outside of us not being in police, you don't, it's going to sound very obvious, well, redundant almost, you don't know how many bodies are found with bloody pads near them. I know. I mean, that is true. Like, they obviously had their reasons. I guess to us it just seems like... It seems so is- obvious. We've isolated the two and been like, oh, look. Exactly. <laughs> like, we've picked two out of what was probably hundreds of murders in mm. Glasgow at that time. In both cases, police did not have witnesses of the crime and this was the 60s. Police didn't have DNA, there was no CCTV and they have zero hard evidence. What police did work out in both cases is that the perpetrator likely knew the area well, but almost as a tourist. And by that I mean they knew the area, but they were definitely not from the area. And they think this because everyone who had seen the woman with the mystery man didn't recognise him. Now, even now, Emily, when we would go to Garage, which is very popular, like the Baran Borrowing was back in the day, we would know someone there. Yeah. I don't remember a night where we didn't go, oh, that's such and such, or oh, that's yeah. such and such. Like every time, there's always someone you know there. At least one person. Mm-hmm. So the fact that no one from the Barrowlands recognised this man suggests he wasn't from the area. So they made a composite sketch of the man last seen with Jemima. Emily, I'll send you this sketch. In fact, it's in the folder. Yeah, I have it open. Have you had... Oh, I'm so happy you have it open. I do. Um, It'll be on our website, Instagram, Facebook. So how would you describe this guy? I don't know, like, I don't. Do you know? Do you know who he reminds me of? Who? My dad when he was young. Do you know what? I do, I was thinking though I didn't want to say it because <laughs> like my dad. Because <laughs> you've shown me pictures of your dad when he was younger. I know. So, like, I know what thing. he looked like. It can't be my dad because my dad wasn't born, but it looks like my dad. I, I did I did think that I will admit, but I didn't want to say it. <laughs> For people that don't know what what my dad looks like, can you describe this man to them? Dad, you. People might not necessarily know what I look like. 
I don't know, because I, I feel weird describing your dad. I don't know why. Oh, the man, the man. You don't oh, have to describe my dad. <laughs> this episode is not about my father. See, now I feel weird if I say if I say creepy. Because <laughs> I've just finished saying that. <laughs> um, you could... Well, I mean, I don't know if it's the pose in, in this... He's kind of got like a wee, like smirky, kind of weird, sly look to his face. He does have a sly look to his face. He's kind of like, I mean, for me, the main similarities to my dad is the fact he's ginger. Ginger, yeah, yeah. Um, but he's he's got quite a thin face, um, quite a small nose, like high cheekbones, I'd say. Yeah. And he he does he has a kind of sly look in his face, which I'm I'm not surprised. He kind of looks sleazy. I mean, that's how I'd describe him if I saw him. Yeah, I that's the thing. Like, I don't know. I don't know what I'd think if I saw him. I think if I saw him, I'd be like, "You look like my dad." I think but, that's the main thing. I think. I don't know. I don't know if me thinking that he looks sleazy is anything to do with me knowing that he's. You know he's a creep. Yeah. <laughs> like, maybe if I didn't know that, then maybe I would understand why these girls were, like, attracted to him. But and that's the thing, I like, he's, he's wearing a very nice suit in yeah. a working class part of Glasgow. I I can see the attraction, let's say. Yeah. I can, I can see that this well-groomed, well-educated man would be like, ooh, to women that might not be used to that yeah that's true I can understand that I guess so this is actually the first time in Scottish history that a composite drawing had been used to try and apprehend someone it seems that the reason it hadn't been done before is because police were worried about legal challenges brought by defence if this is how they'd identify their suspect so one funny part is that the, the police male and female went undercover in the Barland ballroom not the funny part. Good idea. Funny part is the task force who did this, who were called Marine Formation Dance Team. And some police said that they really improved their dancing during this case. And the female police officers said that they put so much effort into getting ready. They had different outfits so they wouldn't be recognised. And they would spend hours doing their makeup. But the bar and ballroom also lost a lot of patrons during this time police murmured about police being around. Now, like the case of Pat, both of these nights were over 25 nights. And these were synonymous with cheating and honestly, going to one of these nights is something you'd want to keep a secret. So police had to reassure the public that every tip they would get would be kept completely confidential. And if someone did contact them, there'd be no questions asked and no judgement would be made. I don't have any explanation for this, but if if someone has a tip, then I hope questions are being asked because I'd I'd want to know more. But basically, people are told if you're cheating, we'll keep it hush hush. So just like in Pat's case, there were no good tips, nothing they didn't already know anyway. So to try and get more interest, Jemima's parents and six siblings offered a reward of £100, which equates to £1,929 today. Not a small amount. No. So police kept up their undercover operation until October of 1969. With nothing other than their new dance skills they'd gathered. So how long was that? A year? 
or less than uh, a year? No, it was like two months. Oh, oh right. Yeah, okay. it was. I think it was actually six weeks. It was from the tail end of August. Oh, okay. Oh, it was two months, tail end of August to late October. Also in late October of 1969, Helen Puttock and her husband George had just returned from being stationed in Germany. He was a 10-year veteran and a corporal in the army. They had been back in Scotland for so little time that they had been boarding at Helen's mum's house, which was on Earl Street in Scotston, which is in the West End. From what I can tell, George was a nice husband. He wasn't soon... He wasn't super keen on Helen going out dancing though, but he wasn't really used to this. But she was going out with her sister and some friends from the neighbourhood. She and the girls had done this loads when they were younger. George told her to enjoy herself and he would look after their two little ones, five-year-old David and little baby Michael. And what makes me think that he was a little sweetie is that he gave her a 10 shilling note for a taxi home at the end of the night. Oh, I know. <laughs> He just seems so sweet. I know, that's so cute. Jean, her sister, often went by Jeannie and she arrived in the early evening and the two, all done up. Helen wore a black sleeveless dress and a full ocelot fur jacket and they got the bus to Barrowlands. Sisters had seen the notices about Bible John and the notices about Jemima McDonald's murder. They knew there was a predator who had been in the Barrowland ballroom they weren't worried. They were going to be together, have some fun, and just enjoy being back together. So back home, George decided to stay up and wait for his wife. He was slightly concerned, but he knew that Jeannie and Helen wouldn't leave each other's sides tonight. But he just had a bad feeling in the pit of his stomach. He wasn't going he was going to wait up until Helen got home. And she would tell him about her night and they'd go to bed. 2 a.m. George was really worried. Where was she? It closed at midnight and even though she could be waiting a wee while for a taxi, surely not two hours. By 3am, George nodded off, despite his best intentions. I hate that feeling of just, like, waiting. You know, that feeling he must have had, like, literally just having to wait and you just sit there worrying. Like, what is happening? Yeah. What is she seeing? What is going on? I hate that so much. Mm-hmm. And there's just nothing you can do but wait. <laughs> you just got to wait for her to come home and hope yeah. you're wrong. But back to the Barrowland Ballroom, Helen, Jeannie and their friends had made it there in one place. They'd made an earlier stop at a local bar and arriving at the Barrowlands for 10pm. No concerns, no worries. They all danced and had a laugh. And at some point in the night, Jeannie and Helen started talking to two men, John and John. When Jeannie lost her money to a cigarette machine, one of the Johns caused a bit of a fuss with the manager. He insisted that they refund Jeannie's 10p in the machine. Usually this sort of confruffle would result in the Johns, Helen and Jeannie all being kicked out. But the men were well dressed. And they came across with an air of confidence. So instead of being escorted out by the bouncers, the manager told them that they could collect their money tomorrow when the machine was emptied. This pacified the situation. Now, some reports say that this is when the four started talking. Others say the four were already talking. And this is when the situation arose. But either way, the four of them started talking at some point in the night. The girls knew when the men introduced themselves as John and John, even though the men made a joke about it, that it was likely not their names. It was an over-25s night, and they might be there hoping to cheat on their wives. 
but the girls knew the reputation of this night. We see this still before the ABC burned down, which those of you unfamiliar with Glasgow was very popular. And do you remember Jelly Baby? Yes. <laughs> do you remember it had a reputation for being where all underage people went? I do, and I, I'm not going to lie, I was probably one of them at one point. Shocking. <laughs> but the girls weren't worried. They weren't there to meet the one. They both had that at home. They just wanted to be out together, have some fun, have a dance and have a drink. So they all spoke. Dark-haired John had been focused on Jeannie and red-haired John had been mostly spoken to Helen. But, you know, they, they spoke as a group too. Jeannie had heard red-haired John saying to Helen that these places were dens of iniquity and that he had a religious father. That he made references to Moses and said, I don't drink at Hogmanay, I pray. And for anyone that doesn't know, Hogmanay is our New Year's Eve. And just an excuse to drink, really. Um, she noticed that he started a lot of sentences with, as the Bible says. Weirdly enough, he said to them that women that went to these places were adulterous. And I can imagine the side eye Helen and Jeannie shared at that comment. <laughs> like, what the hell is he on about? Like, is he talking about us? <laughs> to us what but at the end of the night they collected their coats from the cloakroom Helen her faux ocelot fur coat and red haired John collected their brown tweed jacket as they left the ballroom dark haired John said goodbye and went in separate way he walked to a nearby bus stop the remaining three hailed a taxi and got in and this is where John kind of becomes an open book he says his name was John Templeton or John Sampleson or, or maybe even John Emerson. He lived in Castlemilk. He was unmarried. He had a job and a pet lab. He also had extensive knowledge of suburban train services that were around at the time. And Jeannie noticed that he had been described, he had what she described as a cultured Glasgow accent. That He was handsome, approximately 25 to 30 years old nearly six foot slim that obvious red hair blue green eyes and good teeth but one of his front teeth it was slightly overlapping the other he smoked and his brand of cigarettes was embassy and notably he had smooth hands neatly trimmed nails and they were clean this is notable for the area of glasgow that this was as a majority it was very working class Jeannie thought he might be police or military which I'm sure made her feel more comfortable, leaving her sister in that taxi with him. The taxi drove to Knightswood, which is in the west end of Glasgow, and then on to Scotland, which is only 10-15 minutes away, at the very, very most. The taxi driver remembers dropping off a couple matching their description at 1am on Earl Street, the same street that Helen was living on, and the red-haired man paid the fare. Now we know at 2am George was still awake, and he wasn't in bed with Helen like they should have been. At 1am, a man matching the description of red-haired John was seen getting off a bus and heading towards River Clyde Ferry, which is further east towards city centre and actually goes to the south side of the river, closer towards where the previous two murders were committed. Now, the man seen looked a lot like Bible John, but his face was all scratched, bruised, and he looked much more dishevelled, almost like he'd been in a fight. 
On Halloween in 1969, Helen Puttock's body was discovered by a dog walker in the back garden of her mum's tenement flat on Elf Street. She was partially dressed, badly beaten around the face, raped and then strangled with her own stockings. She had fought for her life. Her feet were covered in grass stains and at one point she tried to climb a railway embankment close by in an effort to get away. She had a deep bite mark on her thigh and semen on her clothes. The contents of her handbag were scattered next to her body. Her actual handbag, though, was nowhere to be seen. At her post-mortem, it was found that she was, as well, on her period. And next to her body at the scene, her bloody pad had been placed under her left armpit. That's just so, so weird. Like, For me, it's not like they're even still in their pants or like... Like, that one was placed under her armpit. Yeah, that is weird. Mm-hmm. And do you know the thing I hate that's been in all of them as well is that he strangled them with their own, like, stockings or, like, they, tights or whatever. Like, that is just gross. That is just... It's, right. Something I find really weird is, like... This is going to sound really gross. I wonder about when you buy the clothes that you die in like, you don't know you're going to die in those clothes. No. But, like, one day you're going to buy the clothes that you're going to die in. Do you know what? I've never thought about that before and I don't like it. <laughs> I know. It's, it's really bad. But sometimes, like, I'll buy new clothes and I'm like, hmm, I hope I don't die in this. Why? This is very seasonal. Just why? Why would you think this way? My brain's not well. <laughs> but, like... They put on those stockings that night, expecting to take them off in their room that night. Mm-hmm. Not have them ripped from their body and have them strangled with them. Oh, I wonder if it's if it's a thing that he. It's obviously like he obviously likes the fact that it's theirs and he's strangling or or maybe it's that he doesn't have anything with him at the time I have theories at the end of, okay. I will tell okay. you mine okay it is a theory that I literally went on a rant about for like a good 40 minutes and I was just nodding along like uh huh <laughs> uh-huh. Becky you've told me this part I'm like, yeah but anyway <laughs> I'm very excited about my theory um, as soon as police were on the scene they knew exactly what they were looking at they knew they had a serial killer when police arrive George runs down the stairs only to find the reason that his wife didn't come home to him last night she was dead just metres from where he'd been waiting for her one question I have is how did he not hear her outside he was still awake like she fought for her life. I do not believe that she didn't scream. Yeah, that is a bit weird. And I'm sure police had this question too, especially since he'd been concerned about her going out that night. And I don't have an answer to this. Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not accusing George of anything. I just find it very strange that he was concerned 
and if he did hear screaming that he didn't go and investigate because I know that if I mean I came home crying from work one day because my papa died on my way home from work and I woke Blair up with my crying coming in for the house and he woke up ready for a fight mm-hmm. and he wasn't even concerned about something that night so yeah I can't imagine someone being concerned about about their partner coming home like whether their partner would come home and then hear screaming and not investigate you know it does seem a bit odd and then also what I find weird is that so Bible John's gone and he's come nearly the whole way home with her but he's decided Mm -hmm. to kill her like so close to her house it just seems really odd so the other ones so the other ones were killed nearby their home mm-hmm. but it was like an like an alley away yeah not literally in the back garden so police trace Helen's steps and they find out from George that she's been at the Battlelands ballroom with her sister Jeannie so they have to break the news to Jeannie and she tells them everything that I mentioned earlier and they press her and is there anything else absolutely anything else you can remember you're our best hope at finding him Jeannie thinks and she remembers some other things his trousers didn't have didn't have cuffs or she describes them as turnips I didn't understand this so I asked my mum who knows all of this stuff and she basically said in the late 60s men would turn up the hem of their trousers to look modern so the fact that he wasn't doing this indicates to me that he wasn't trying to look trendy. He was going for like the classic look. His watch had a wide leather band and he wore a pin or metal badge on his lapel and he kept touching it. Jeannie said that she felt like he was trying to hide it. So this pin reminds me of a pin that my papa had that had a university emblem on it. If it was a university pin, it would explain why he sounded educated. And she said that she felt that he had been in the military or the police because he had an authoritative and slightly condescending, condescending, judgmental air about him. He'd spoken about playing golf, but that his cousin was better and his cousin had once scored a hole, hole in one. So they had a lot of information and a lot to go on. They improved their sketch of Bible John and they resumed their undercover operation. They hung posters in churches around Glasgow, asked around golf courses for John or his hole-in-one getting cousin. They also tried to find that other John. You know, you'd think if you found out your friend had brutally raped and murdered an innocent woman that you'd hand them in. You'd think that if they had saw it and it was everywhere. So did dark-haired John travel for work? And in regards to searching for Bible John, they searched army bases throughout the UK and even abroad. Looked to official military records and NATO records. And they did this because of what Jeannie said about the man's demeanour, his like watch style as well. Apparently that was very common with military men and his short hair. They also guessed that the large gap in time between the first and second murder could be the time, could be the amount of time he'd been stationed abroad for. And it would also explain why he was living with a family member and why he wasn't recognised. I mean, that all adds up, I guess. It makes sense. It's part of my theory, too. (laughs) So police even looked at hairdressers to see if they recognised the man's hair and hairstyle. But 
this is Scotland and being ginger is very common. Um, they looked at dentists to see if anyone recognised teeth, but a lot of people had similar teeth like this. And every single one that they found was a dead end. So they went to tailors to see if anyone recognised the suit that Bible John had been seen in. And they even brought in a Dutch psychic who you might have heard of if you've ever looked at the case of the Beaumont children in Australia. And he said that the area of Govan was important, but that was it. They collected 50,000 tips in this case. And in the end, they had 5,000 suspects who were all identified, interviewed and cleared. So a lot of people think that Bible John is Peter Tobin, who we covered in our last episode. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. So could Peter Tobin be Bible John? Certainly capable of it. He was in Glasgow at the time. He was known for using fake names. He was 21 and at the time often went to the Barrowlands Ballroom and he actually met his first wife at Barrowlands. She was 17 and he was 21. This was around the time that he attacked his first wife. And the Daily Record says that the attack was driven by the Thatcher's Honour period. But I haven't seen that recorded anywhere else. Um, a lot of sources say that Peter Tobin looks like Bible John. Um, Emily, do you have that file? Yes, Bye. I'm just looking now. Oh, do you know what? The middle one, yeah. Do you think he looks like him? I mean, he could. But the thing is that I'm noticing is, well, I guess it could just... Because I don't see it. I don't see it at all. It could be the face shape is... I mean, the chin kind of looks similar to me, I guess. But also, um, Peter Tobin's eyebrows are really, really dark. But then this guy's eyebrows could just be like not drawn that dark. Um, I just, I see no similarities and I think that something that was common in all of the, in everyone else's um, reports on this guy was that he was ginger and I don't, I don't think he looks ginger now. I know we mentioned his niece in the last episode and she is very ginger, but I, I don't see Peter Dobin being ginger. Yeah, the eyes just look really different. Like Peter Tobin has these like almost like sunken but like buggy eyes. Yeah. I don't see it personally. I feel like their ears are very different as well. So maybe uh, no. I think the closest that they would look the same is this middle picture of him with the dark hair Mm -hmm. and then this one. But then when you look closer, it just they don't really have many similarities. I think if you're trying to force it, you could find then stuff. you could see it yeah but i don't i personally don't see it um one of the police officers as part of marine dance formation operation saw a photo of tobin after angelica cluck's murder and said this is as near a bible john as you're going to get so some people do see it um tobin was actually living down south when the second and third murders happened but People say it's possibly came up here to do it. The DNA on Puttock's tights didn't match Peter Tobin, but the people who are certain Tobin is Bible John say that the semen isn't the killers, which I find very strange. That like, is weird. 
the semen on her like I I can't imagine her being like yeah I'm gonna leave the house with all this semen on my clothes um, um, well yeah it seems unlikely I think the kind of like implication is that she's had like some kind of sexual encounter yeah maybe at the Badlands maybe but she, I don't think she's gonna do that when when George is at home she could have I just it seems so unlikely it does like but I mean I guess if if you're if you're one of those people that are like you're certain that they're the same person then I guess as you said before you'd be like desperate to find anything to make it add up Mm -hmm. like make anything up to make it make sense like there's one guy that says he would literally stake his career on Tobin being Bible John and I've covered it in one paragraph and I'm like no no (laughs) sorry don't see it um I really don't think Tobin's Bible John um, there are other suspects, a businessman who hired private investigators to frame an old schoolmate who had moved to Holland. There was a man who killed himself in the 80s who was a cousin of another suspect. Um, he was actually exhumed to have his DNA taken to test against semen stain on Helen Puttock's tights. Um, the results came back as inconclusive as the stain was too old and wasn't kept well enough. But this is also the stain they test against Peter Tobin. So I don't know. Was it the the body's DNA was too old? Mm. I don't know. But it came back as inconclusive. Um, so do you want to hear my theory? Yes, I'm excited for this. <laughs> Me too. I think this John went to the Barrowlands Ballroom and other nightclubs, would be nice to women, would offer to walk them back home and then rape them. I think that when he saw Patricia, Jemima and Helen were on their periods, it sent them into a rage and he killed them. I think that it sent them into a rage because of how the Bible refers to menstruation. So I will read you something from the Bible saying... When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening and everything on which she lies during the menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. Whoever she touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits, when he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And I found so many of these references to women being unclean and just basically like worthless on their period and being just demonised for this natural thing that women can't control Um, but this man grew up in a very strict religious household and he could have believed this he could have wanted the ratification of rape I also think he raped other women but in this time rape was normalised and often women felt like that it was their fault they were raped and they may have thought because these were over 25 nights that 
I had a bad reputation that the possibility and the burden would have been put on them that their husbands in the community may have said that they were to blame for this awful thing that had happened to them and I do think this was someone in the military because of the long time between Patricia's murder and Jemima's and because of how close Jemima and Helen's were and I think that the demeanour demeanor Jeannie describes and because he wasn't recognised like every single ginger man in the city was looked at twice in the street because they were a ginger man so it could have been him I think if he'd stayed in the city I think he would have been caught so I I think it was some military guy who raped women and the fact these three women who were on their period sent him into a rage so he murdered them and I think that it was they. I think they were going to be raped that night by him I think he decided that and the fact they were on their periods meant that he felt like he had to kill them because he was mad and you know he was now unclean I feel that this whole unclean thing kind of could maybe um, make sense of maybe why his hands were so like his nails were so trimmed and clean all the time like maybe Mm -hmm. he has this whole thing with staying clean because he's been in contact with these women who are unclean from being on their period Mm -hmm. He's just trying to like purify himself. Mm-hmm. I think it, it's good. It sounds like a good theory. I mean, it's. Um, I mean, it would all make sense that like he's away on deployment and the, these long times between the t- the the murders, like that would make sense. Yeah, and like I I think mine makes sense, but I also know that mine's been. Mine is, is built around the facts that we know. Mm. So, like, of course it fits, because I've built it around that, but yeah. I don't think the Peter Tobin thing fits. Yeah. Um, after Helen's murder, there was no similar murders committed. So, what are you, do you have a theory? Me? Hmm, you. <laughs> well, I don't know, I'd, I thought... I was thinking about something, you know, that there were like the two Johns, that maybe mm-hmm. the other John could it could be some sort of like thing that they, like they do together. But then that guy left and he wasn't a part of that whole thing. Yeah. So, but I thought it was a bit weird that it was two like guys who were quite friendly, and then also that the other John didn't say anything afterwards. Like he didn't come. Forward. I don't like that. And maybe he was like worried that because he had spent so much time with this guy, he would then be viewed as like dodgy or mm-hmm. or whatever. But or maybe he had left and didn't know about it. But um, because if what? So this guy, this other John, could have like if red-haired John was in the military, dark-haired John could have known red-haired John from the military, and they just both got deployed at that time. Yeah. That's true. So, those are my thoughts. I don't know though. And then, and then th- th- it was also when you said about the the semen not matching the the what was it that it didn't match the killer's DNA. So the DNA didn't match Peter Tobin's. Peter Tobin, and it yeah. was yeah, and it was inconclusive about another guy whose cousin was also a suspect. 
Um, but then they, they exhumed this other guy and it was inconclusive and they say that the stain, well, the, the DNA was tooled, so I don't know if that means the stain or if that means the dead body. Yeah. It was the part about when we said that the people who are certain that Peter Tobin is Bible John, they say mm-hmm. that the semen isn't the killer's. Yeah. So they're thinking, that's what then made me think, what if it was that other guy? Like, what if he did have something to do with it? And it was his. Does that make sense? Like, he went to get a bus as like a sidetrack kind of thing? I don't know. Like, it just seems a bit weird that there were two guys there together who were that friendly and had a whole joke about them both being called John and John. And then just the other one left and had nothing to do with it. I don't know. But I mean, I guess, but like, that's almost like you getting a taxi back to Bridge of Weir after a night out. And when I still lived in Glasgow, me getting a different taxi. That's true. I don't know. I mean, this is my first time hearing it, so I don't. I, Very my, true. My theories are probably like all of a. They're baby theories. A, a mess all over the place because. Is it all this new? They're uncooked. Yes. <laughs> so let us know what you guys think. Uh, do you think Peter Tobin did it? Um, any suspects that you like? Or do you think they're unrelated murders? Because some people think these are unrelated. I disagree. But It's just it's just that bloody pad thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't look past no. that. No. <laughs> um, do you think this killer kept on killing? Changed his MO? Um, I think he could have continued killing in a different country and changed his MO personally. But that's us all out of true crime for today. If you liked us or even just want to make me happy, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook and maybe Twitter. Yes. If you're on Twitter. If you want to see any of the photos relating to this case, then you can go to our website. They'll also be on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Thanks. See you next week.